Okay, uh, make sure you're in the book of Daniel, and uh, we're going to be in Daniel chapter 7. So here we come in our time through the book of Daniel to a transitional chapter. Chapters 1 to 6 of Daniel are the life and times of Daniel, and chapters 7 to 12 are the visions of Daniel. And the vision of chapter 7 took place during the time between Daniel 4 and 5. So you can see that the book isn't always sequential. And I'll, always, I'll point that out each time we see that, as I already have. Uh, but especially now, that's going to become more important in the next chapters. This chapter is linked directly to what we have already seen in the statue of chapter 2. So we now have a further explanation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream that Daniel interpreted regarding the statue representing the empires of Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome, concluding world history at the second coming of Jesus and his eternal kingdom, the fifth and final kingdom, which is from heaven. So here's a picture of the statue again. I think most of you are familiar with it. The head is gold. That represents what? Babylon. And then the, uh, the arms and chest are silver. That represents Medo-Persia. And then the belly and thighs of bronze represent Greece. And, uh, and then the, the feet are of iron and, the, and clay, and that represents Rome. And then you see there's a big stone there. And if you remember chapter 2, see these hand, not human hands pulled out this stone and hit the statue on the bottom and the whole thing would collapse. And that just barely, that represents the kingdom of God, uh, the second coming of Jesus Christ. So last time we saw that Daniel never compromised his faith in God and overcame the testing of his commitment through the lion's den, demonstrating how to live in a non-biblical culture and still be respected by evil, powerful leaders in that culture. That's, that's something to learn, and we need it today. God delivered Daniel's three friends from the fiery furnace and delivered Daniel from the diabolical plans to eliminate him from the jaws of the lions, and in all of this, we see the working of the sovereign will of God in the midst of very difficult times in history then and in history today. God's people had been judged and removed from their homeland to live in Babylon. But they'll return from captivity to their land and become a significant people again. The predictive prophecy of chapters 7 to 12 gave the people something to look forward to. They didn't know when Israel would return to the land or when the Messiah would come, but they knew it would happen and that Scripture had already outlined uh, their return. So we're in the same position today. Israel is again in the, in the homeland. Uh, it's a homeland to the Jews, and Jesus is coming again to deliver us soon. So the message of this chapter in Daniel is still the message today. The Lord wanted Daniel to know that regardless of the tyranny of the coming empires, God's purposes 
were being fulfilled. So look in your Bibles, right from the beginning, verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. Now, this is after Nebuchadnezzar's reign, before the fall of Babylon, the writing on the wall and all that, before that. Daniel had a dream and visions passed through his mind. So he had a dream, but in the dream, there were visions that passed through his mind as he was lying in bed. He was asleep, and he wrote down the substance of his dream. Now, this would have happened around 553 B.C. I know that doesn't mean much to us, but it was 14 years before the fall of Babylon. The statue of chapter 2 was Nebuchadnezzar's dream interpreted by Daniel. The dream or vision and vision, not or vision, the dream with visions of chapter 7 was given to Daniel and interpreted by an angel. One pictures history from mankind's point of view, and the other is a commentary on world history from God's point of view. So in verse 2, Daniel said, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me were the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Now, many commentators say that was the Mediterranean Sea and all of that. Uh, I don't think so. I mean, you might think that the great sea is a body of water. But as you read further and check out other scripture, the context actually makes it likely the sea here is not water at all. For instance, Isaiah chapter 57, verse 20. But the wicked are like the tossing sea, are like the tossing sea, which cannot rest, whose waves cast up mire and mud. And then in, in, in verse 3, we will see four beasts coming up out of the sea. It, but verse 17 of our chapter says the same beasts come up from the earth. So you can look at it in your Bible, or I put it on the screen. The four great beasts, verse 17 says, are four kings that will rise from the earth. Therefore, verse 17 controls, I think, the interpretation of sea in this context. One scholar says this, thus the peoples of the earth are portrayed as a great sea of humanity in a constant state of unrest, chaos, and turmoil. A nap description of today's world. Now that quote is, is quite a few years old, just years old, not a lot of years, but a few years old, but it's exactly the same today. That's exactly what it's like today. The winds in the Bible, winds often point to God's sovereignty. Uh, God is in control, even though everything seems to be in turmoil. That's the idea behind the winds. Uh, And again, that's the case today. You don't have to... uh, One of the things I've had to make sure I don't do is start to use all kinds of things that I've seen on the news or something, it'd be just the, the newscast over again. It's, it's amazing uh, how relevant Daniel has become to us as we're going through it. So verse 3, four great beasts, each different from the others, come up out of this sea of humanity. I'll add those words. The kings of verse 17 represented by the four great beasts, 
represent four kingdoms. A king has to have a kingdom and represent four kingdoms. So we are now getting more information on the four kingdoms of the statue of chapter 2, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome, gold, silver, bronze, iron, and clay. And we've already pointed out some of the differences. The metal becomes less and less valuable. Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom was an absolute rule, where Darius's kingdom included the rule of law, as we saw last time. So the first beast, the first beast, it says in verse 4, the first beast was like a lion, and it had the wings of an eagle. And I watched. Now, they're behind it. This is written in Aramaic at this point, and the words behind it denote just a tension. And so Daniel is saying, the first king was like a lion and it had the wings of an eagle and I watched intently until its wings were torn off and it was lifted from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a human being. And the mind of a man was given to it. This is describing the head of gold, as Daniel said in chapter 2. Daniel had said to Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar, you are that head of gold. The scriptures describe Babylon as a lion. Jeremiah chapter 4 verse 7. A lion has come out of his lair. A destroyer of nations has set out. He has left his place to lay waste your land, your towns will lie in ruins without inhabitant. Or chapter 50 of Jeremiah, Israel is a scattered flock that lions have chased away. The first to devour them was the king of Assyria. The last to crush their bones was Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. And then more than that, Jeremiah describes Babylon in verse 49 this way, uh, Jeremiah 49:22. look, an eagle will soar and swoop down, spreading its wings over Basra. In that day, the hearts of Edom's warriors will be like the heart of a woman in labor. In other words, they'll be screaming and yelling. <clears throat> Both the lion and the eagle have been found by archaeologists as symbols during the Babylonian Empire. The wings torn off and the heart of a man represent Nebuchadnezzar's insanity, you remember that? Which led to his humbling as God lifted him up. Now verse 5. And there before me, there's terrible tension in this, was the second beast, which looked like a bear. And it was raised up on one of its sides and had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, get up and eat your fill of flesh. Now, the bear was an apt symbol for the Media Persia Empire. It was known for its great size. It could weigh over 500 pounds and its fierceness in battle. The Nebuchadnezzar statue had two arms as this was a split empire. 
The bear was on its side with one side higher than the other, representing the larger Persian side of the empire. And in the next chapter, we see a further description in Daniel chapter 8, verse 3. And when we come up next time with Daniel 8, we'll have to bring this all together. But it reads this way, I looked up, and there before me was a ram with two horns standing beside the canal, and the horns were long, and one of the horns is longer than the other, but grew up later. So the ram, in this case, represents what the bear represents, the kings of Media and Persia. And later on in Daniel chapter 8, verse 20, it says the two-horned ram that you saw represents the kings of Media and Persia. So we're still thinking of the statue. The three ribs represent conquest by the bear, probably Babylon, Lydia, and then Egypt. The command, get up and eat your fill of flesh, means that this empire would subdue many empires, and in fact, it controlled more territory than any empire in history until that time. And then we go to verse 6. After that, I looked, and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard, and on its back it had four wings like those of a bird. And this beast had four heads, and it was given authority to rule. Now, notice the way these animals are presented by Daniel. They come in sequence. Not all at once, but in sequence, the same as the empires they represent, just like the statue. I think the statue imagery is obvious here, and this is the Grecian empire of bronze. Alexander the Great invaded Asia Minor in 334 BC. And within 10 years, he was only 32 years old, he had quickly, like a leopard, like a leopard pounces on its prey, conquered the entire Medo-Persian empire all the way to the borders of India. Legend tells us that Alexander then wept as there were no more lands to conquer. The four wings can denote speed and probably the four corners of the earth or simply world domination. And the four heads? Alexander died in 323 BC. There were many attempts to unify the empire, but they all failed, and the empire was divided into four parts. Again, Daniel chapter 8, the next chapter, tells us about that. Daniel 8 Verse 8 and verses 21 and 22. The goat became very great, but at the height of its power, his large horn was broken off, and in its place, four prominent horns, same imagery in a sense, grew up toward the four winds of heaven. The shaggy goat is the king of Greece, and the large horn between his eyes is the first king. And the four horns that replace the one that was broken off represent four kingdoms that will emerge from this nation but will not have the same power. I'll say more near the end about this, just a little bit more. But these, this, these visions are geographically or historically, if you want to put it that way, are historically just perfect. If you really take the time to study in incredible depth uh, the book of, of Daniel, you have to come away totally amazed 
knowing when it was written, before all these things happened, a long time before these things happened, how accurate it was to history. Uh, we'll get to chapter 11 especially. Now, verse 7. After that, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts, and it had ten horns. This was an incredibly frightening thing for him to see, just terrifying. This beast was unlike anything Daniel had seen before. There was no corresponding animal in Daniel's mind. This was a terrifying dream. But we know from Daniel's description of the statue of chapter 2, this is Rome. Rome was, the, uh, was an empire like no other that literally crushed its enemies beneath the feet of its highly skilled and cruel legions. Rome killed its enemies by the thousands and sold hundreds of thousands into slavery. The Nebuchadnezzar statue had 10 toes. And here we have 10 kingdoms represented by 10 horns. In Daniel chapter 7, verse 24, it says the 10 horns are 10 kings who will come from this terrifying kingdom. Now look at verse 8. While I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, a little one, at least it started out small, which came up among them, and it grew more powerful. And three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth that spoke boastfully. This new ruler defeated three of the kings, uprooted, meaning he did away with them. Daniel chapter 7, 24 again, the ten kings are ten kings, ten horns are ten kings who will come from this kingdom. After them, another king will arise different from the earlier ones. He will subdue three kings. The eyes represent intelligence and insight and wisdom. This king will be a charismatic leader, very clever and intelligent, but very arrogant and ungodly. In Daniel 7.25, it says he will speak against the most high and oppress his holy people. I believe this little horn is the most infamous person in human history, the Antichrist. Even Jerome, who lived in A.D. 400, he's the man that wrote the Latin Bible. And uh, he said of this horn, one of the human race in whom Satan will wholly take up his residence in bodily form. So I believe these horns point to a confederation of European nations that will become strong during the end times that we're now living in. Not in this sermon, but in another one, I'll make that clear, I think. There were ten toes, and here we see ten kings. So this could either mean they will be exactly ten rulers, or that they will simply be a very strong alliance of nations controlled by one man. And this could happen quickly. It could happen at any time. Certainly, if you're watching anything of present-day politics, this is easy to believe. It's important to realize this was all written 
before all these things happened. Uh, we, we have to keep that in mind. I spent a little bit of time in the beginning just trying to establish the fact that this is real pre-written history. I mean, it's history that was going to happen a long time later, right up to the second coming of Jesus Christ. And so it was written down before every, any of this happened. And <clears throat> liberal scholars who refused to believe Daniel was written before these events say the extreme accuracy of the history Daniel records is simply past history. But the verdict is in. This was written a very long time before the events represented by Daniel's dream. If this is true, then it would be folly to ignore the careful reading of the Bible. And by the way, the New Testament has a description of this little horn who became a big mouth. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or his worship so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God, and then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. So now we have an amazing contrast between this blasphemous king and God himself. Verse 9 in your Bibles. As I looked, thrones were set in place. And the ancient of days, the ancient of days is the eternal God, the judge of all mankind. The ancient of days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool, a picture of purity, not age. His throne was flaming with fire. It's a picture of the glory of God. And its wheels were all ablaze, a picture of judgment. Here we have, in symbolic language, in apocalyptic language, the purity and the power of God, the holiness of God, and the judgment of God. And then in verse 10, it's, we're really having a, an unusual glimpse of heaven. A river of fire was flowing. Think of a, an overflow of uh, coming out of the top of a volcano, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. All I think that pictures angels. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him, and the court was seated. And the books were open. The books were open. God's wrath and judgment were about to be poured out on this little horn and his kingdom. In chapter 2, we already showed the picture at the very beginning, a rock suddenly ended the statue. And here we see a spectacular end also. An end symbolized with the flaming fire of perfect justice, the judgment of God. There are books that have all our deeds in them, and there is a book of life that has our name in it. If we're in the book of life, we are and will be saved and rewarded for the deeds we have done that God prepared for us even before we were saved. In the morning sermons through 1 Corinthians, we've been talking about this judgment and the rewards and all of that and how that should motivate us 
to live. But if we are in the book of life, we are and will be saved, and we will be rewarded for the deeds we have done that God prepared for us even before we were saved. And again, last past Sunday, I said that I, I, uh, we were talking about pride and, and everything that we've been, was, everything we have has been given to us. And, and I said in the context of that that I didn't choose my parents. But one of the great mysteries of salvation is that God chose and made a plan for my life before I was born. Now, the reason that is so difficult for some to understand is that their view of God is far too human. He is God. He's eternal. He can't learn because he already knows the beginning from the end. And that should cause us to experience the awe of God as he continues to be with us until the end. I remember watching a program one time on, uh, I think it was YouTube or something, uh, that was saying that if God already knows everything, therefore he must be in control of everything, therefore uh, we're just a bunch of puppets. No, it's not like that at all. But it's also not like anything that we can explain to our human satisfaction. God knew that even though I was going to through, go through these atheist days and do these debates and all that stuff against God and curse God and all that thing... God already knew the choices I would make even before I was born. The miracle is that he let me be born at all. And as we talked about on Sunday, God says, I'm the chief of sinners. God said, David said, <laughs> Paul said, thanks, Valerie. Yeah. yeah, Paul said, I'm the chief of sinners near the end of his life. And as we talked about it, uh, he wasn't... He was saying that on purpose because he was amazed that God saved him, the murderer of Christians. And God already knew he was going to do all that. We ask all these questions, and I do like to answer them and do uh, that kind of thing in a debate format. But, uh, you know, if God knew all that, why did he then allow Paul to be born? Why did he let me be born? And then there's all you. <laughs> And the answer is, I don't know. A grace is so amazing. I don't know. But I do know that it's to whoever who received him, to those who become, or the ones that become children of God, that to receive something means you have to make a choice to receive that. And uh, I chose that, and I'm pretty confident all of you here tonight have chosen that. And it just should cause us to have this the fear of God is the awe of God. Revelation chapter 3, verse 5 reads, The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person, my name, from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. Oh, that's so awesome. Now look at verse 11 in our text. Then I continued to watch... Daniel says, because of the boastful words, the horn was speaking. Daniel is transfixed by this scene. I kept looking until the beast was slain and his body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. So the beast is completely gone. The beast or the little horn was unrepentant right to the end. This is a picture of just how quickly God can dispose of even the mightiest of men. 
I can't help but think of Hitler. I've read a great deal about the Second World War. My father was in that war. My brother was in that war. My sister was in that war. My brother was killed in that war. And there was a time when it looked like the boastful Hitler would succeed in ruling the world. Then, quickly, it was over, and he was dead, and Germany was defeated, and lay in ruins. But here's a warning for those of us who study the end times. The devastation of Germany was total. If we had been living there as Christians, we would be expecting the Lord to come very soon. But instead, Germany was rebuilt and again became prosperous. That's why Jesus warned his disciples in Acts chapter uh, 1 that the timing of the second coming was none of their business. They needed to get to the task of the Great Commission by discipling others who are becoming followers of Jesus. The signs of the times are reminding us that Jesus is coming again, and we might not have much time left, so get going and tell everyone that God loves them and sent Jesus to save them. Now verse 12, it's like an aside. That's why in my Bible it's got little brackets around it. The other beast, this is what was left of the world powers, the other beast have been stripped of their authority, but were allowed to live for a period of time. Now, the rest of the beasts are the other horns, gold, Babylon, silver, and bronze, and iron horns are already destroyed long before what we're studying here. The statue of chapter 2 stayed together until the rock came and finally destroyed it all at the second coming of Christ. There'll be world powers of various kinds until the second coming when Jesus will finally take over everything and rule righteously during the millennium here on this earth. Now verse 13. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man. <laughs> now I have quoted this in your hearing, those of you who are regulars here, for years and years and years. The Son of Man was Jesus' favorite self-designation. And, and not only did he mean it to portray deity, but especially the religious leaders, even the religious people of Jesus' day knew that that's what was happening. And they knew all about the, what we call the book of Daniel. And so, in my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven, when Jesus left and they're all looking up, the angels looked down and said, what are you looking at? You know, I mean, he's gone and he's coming back just like you saw him with the clouds. Uh, clouds represent God all through the Bible. So in my vision at night, I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven and he approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. And he, the Son of Man, was given authority, glory, sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. So he's not an angel. He's not a superhuman. Therefore, this couldn't be either an angel or a human. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Eternal. And so, as I've said, this verse is often referred to in the New Testament, and it should be obvious who this is to all of us. In uh, Mark chapter 14, in a few verses, we have Jesus being confronted, and someone says, are you the Christ, the Messiah? 
the son of the blessed one, the son of God? I am, said Jesus. And you will see me sitting. Do you see what it says? You will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the mighty one and coming on the clouds of heaven, just like the angels said would happen. You have heard the blasphemy, they say. What do you think? And they all condemned him as worthy as death. We have the same picture in the beginning of John's, well, John chapter 10, where they were going to stone him to death for saying basically the same thing. Only he used the I am saying to say that he was God. A very important point here. Jesus rules only in the hearts of the saints. We're all saints if we're Christians uh, today. But he doesn't literally rule in the world. The kingdom of God is in our, we are the church, and the kingdom of God is the ruler and reign of Christ in our hearts, in our lives. Daniel has been talking about literal kingdoms, and we can see that Jesus will actually rule one day on this earth during the millennium. The Revelation points out that the rule will be for 1,000 years, but according to this passage, the rule goes past the millennium for all of eternity. We also have a picture of the Godhead here, a picture of God as the Ancient of Days and a picture of Jesus who claimed deity also. And in verse 15, here's Daniel again. I, Daniel, was troubled in spirit. Now, there's... A bit of a translation problem here in the Aramaic language, but I think it's pretty permissible for me to, uh, uh, to put it this way. Uh, Daniel was troubled in spirit and in body. That's actually what the wording means. And the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. Now, this is kind of important. It teaches us something that I hope we already know, but... Much is made regarding body and spirit pictured here. The language, as I said, it's Aramaic, is worded as if the body is a sheath filled with a sword. The human spirit is different from our bodies. The human spirit is different from our bodies. The sword exists outside the sheath and our spirit dwells within our bodies and is more important than our bodies, but our bodies can have an effect on our eternal spirit. Therefore, it should be high priority to take care of the temporary decaying bodies God gave us. They'll eventually be exchanged for an eternal body. Read 1 Corinthians 15, find out what it looks like. And then we go on to verse 16. I approach one of those standing there, Daniel says. Who is that? It would have been an angel, almost certainly, probably Gabriel. And I asked him the true meaning of all this. So he told me and gave me the interpretation of these things. The four beasts are four kingdoms that will rise from the earth. But the holy people of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it, possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. It literally translates uh, to the forever and to the forever of forevers. So this goes past even the millennium. And then in verse 19, he says, then I wanted to know the true meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others and most terrifying with its iron teeth and bronze claws the beast that crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. 
I also wanted to know about the ten horns on his head and about the other horn uh, that came up before which three of them fell, the horn that looked more imposing than the others and that had eyes and a mouth that spoke boastfully. And as I watched, this horn was waging war against the holy people. It's almost like a movie was turned on at this point uh, for Daniel. And I watched this horn was waging war against the holy people and defeating them until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favor of the holy people of the Most High. And the time came when they possessed the kingdom. I mean, this is just incredible. Now, I know some of you aren't old like me, but when I was a young boy, I used to go to the cowboy movies. Uh, it cost me, like, I think it was 20 cents or something. And uh, in all of the movies, it, just about every movie, there was a time when the Calvary showed up. And all of us kids would be sitting there, and you could hear, I could still hear the trumpet call, and the, the Indians are defeating everybody, and then you hear this, da -da 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 -da, you know, and then the, everybody gets excited, and over the hill comes the Calvary to beat the Indians. I guess today you're not supposed to do that or even say it, but that's just the movies. That's the way it is, uh, the way they were. And we all, as little kids, get all excited, and we'd clap and cheer, and uh, the Calvary came every weekend when we went to those cowboy movies. <laughs> they were a busy Calvary. And that's the picture here. It's a picture of the second coming. And we learn much more in the Revelation. Here's just one example. Revelation 13. The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise his authority for 42 months. That's three and a half years. He opened his mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. And he was given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. And he was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. That's really something. Daniel was frightened by what he saw. He could see that God's people will go through a time of extreme hardship and though Daniel could see that they would win in the end, he was concerned, and he wanted to know more. In verse 23, we read, he, that is the angel, he gave me this explanation. The fourth beast is a fourth kingdom that will appear on earth. It'll be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth, trampling it down and crushing it. The ten horns are ten kings who will come from this kingdom, and after them another king will arise different from the earlier ones, and he'll subdue the three kings, and he'll speak against the Most High and oppress the holy people and try to change the set times and the laws. In other words, religious freedoms will be oppressed. It has always been the characteristic of dictators to eliminate religious freedom. The Prime Minister of Canada, I've told you this many times, uh, says you can't be a loyal Canadian and a Christian at the same time. You know the next step from that isn't going to be pretty. And um, there's clearly a move, even in our country today, have you seen that it is a recent news item, I don't like to bring them up, but it just kind of shocked me, Utah has banned the Bible in schools. I think it's just part of Utah or something, and now they're going to ban the Book of Mormon. I mean, wow. It's amazing. You can hardly believe that's happening in our country today. There's a move to completely secularize society so that religion has no hold on people. 
During the French Revolution, there was an attempt to replace the AD dating. There was an elaborate plan to revise the months and weeks, revise them. For 12 years, from 1793 to 1805, this revolutionary calendar was made obligatory, and those who had heard to the Christian calendar were subject to criminal prosecution. They even changed the work week from seven days to 10 days. And presently, of course, BC and AD have been changed in academic circles to BCE and CE. And I've talked about that quite a bit over the years. Verse 25. He will speak against the Most High and oppress His holy people and try to change the set times and the laws. The holy people will be delivered into His hands for a time, times, and half a time. That's three and a half years. This is a picture of what happens during the seven-year period before Jesus returns. The Antichrist will rule for seven years, and there will be a tribulation during the last three and a half years, and then Jesus will return to inaugurate the thousand-year millennium. When we get to chapter 9 of Daniel, I'll be able to show you the evidence for this and the reason I believe the church will have already been removed in an event called the rapture. I've taught this many times in the hearing of most of you, uh, so make sure you read it again in advance so that you can ask many questions after. All of this is pictured in Revelation chapter 13 and 17. In Revelation 17, a couple of verses here. The ten horns you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but for one hour, just meaning a short period of time, will receive authority as kings along with the beast. They have one purpose and will give their power and authority to the beast, and they'll make war against the Lamb. That's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, John the Baptist said. But the Lamb will overcome them because he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and with him will be his called, chosen, and faithful followers. That's us. This is a picture of the second coming when this final king kingdom will be defeated permanently. Verse 26, but the court will sit and his power will be taken away and completely destroyed forever. Revelation 19, Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who had performed the miraculous signs on his behalf. And with these signs he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. Picture of hell. Verse 27, then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be handed over to the holy people of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all rulers will worship and obey him. Now, this is certainly not the case now, but it will be someday, and we'll be there. Philippians chapter 2, therefore God exalted him, Jesus, to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And then verse 28, this is the end of the matter. You, you, can all, you know, if you've, in studying this through, I felt like Daniel must have been exhausted at this point. This is the end of the matter. 
I, Daniel, was deeply troubled by my thoughts and my face turned pale. But I kept the matter to myself. Daniel was in shock. So here's just a question. Why do we have two versions of the same thing? Chapter 2 and chapter 7 are sort of the same thing in many ways. There's lots of differences, but they're the same general idea of that statue. I believe it's to underline the fact these things will definitely happen. Pharaoh was given two dreams of the same thing, and here's what Joseph said to Pharaoh in Genesis 41. The reason the dream was given to Pharaoh in two forms is that the matter has been firmly decided by God, and God will do it soon. Jesus is coming soon. There's no time he can't come, and and he could come at any time. And so we need to be living as if he was coming even today, and we need to be living for him and worshiping him and serving him and being faithful to what he has given us. There will always be conflict, conflict in this world because there is an ongoing spiritual battle. God is sovereign. Nothing happens outside his permission and control. All things are being worked out for good. The world as we know it, though, will end. Therefore, be careful... Don't fall in love with the world, but do fall in love with the eventual ruler of the world, Jesus, our Savior. At the end of all things, as we now know them, God will return the creation to what he intended in the first place. And uh, I know I used to like to argue this way. Why didn't he just start over when Adam and Eve sinned? Well, the answer is that he already had a plan, and we are all part of it if we choose to be. Aren't you glad that he didn't start over back then? Another reason is that God knew there was no other way to complete what he started. And he loved us so much he wanted to be with us as we're with him for all of eternity. That's why we do communion. The reason we do communion together is to never forget, I know it's a broken record, but to never forget the cost of our free salvation. 